This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and today we're talking about the repercussions of the U.S. drone strike, which killed Iranian commander Qasem Soleimani last week. Soleimani was head of the Revolutionary Guard's Quds Force, an elite unit that handles Iran's overseas operations. And then earlier this week, Iran launched a retaliatory missile strike against two Iraqi military bases that house U.S. forces, which had the effect of destroying buildings, but not causing any casualties. Now President Trump has said that after this attack, Iran appears to be standing down. But my guest today says this crisis will not end here. And in fact, she says the repercussions of the killing of Soleimani will be felt for days, months, even years to come. Joining me is Kelly Magsiman, who is the Vice President for National Security and International Policy at the Center for American Progress. In addition to working in the Departments of Defense and State, she was also National Security Council's Director for Iran under both Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. She has a timely new essay in foreign affairs called How to Avoid Another War in the Middle East. Welcome, Kelly. It's great to have you on Deep Dish. Great to be here. Now, before we talk about the consequences of of what happens, I want to take just a step back and put this whole set of events um, in a little bit of a broader context, which is in the run-up to the decision uh, to uh, kill Soleimani, there were a series of things going on, actions by Iranian proxies against U.S. Uh, forces and contractors, as well as action against the U.S. Mili- uh, against the U.S. Embassy in Iraq. What happened, and what was the context that drove this decision? Yeah, so, I mean, I think I would even go back uh, a little bit further from, from the just immediate incidents in Iraq. I mean, I think... When the president uh, withdrew from the JCPOA, the um, agreement, the, the nuclear, nuclear agreement, yeah, yeah, which is the Iranian, uh, the nuclear agreement that we had forged uh, under the Obama administration. When he when he walked away from that uh, and moved towards a strategy of maximum pressure, um, sort of abandoning a diplomatic approach for the time being. Uh, you know, I think essentially put us on this course. Um, And some of this, I think, is an inevitable outcome of the fact that the Iranians under pressure are going to hit back. Um, This is not uh, not an unsophisticated country. Uh, They have their own interests, and they're certainly trying to send a message. So what's interesting is that the Iranians, you know, since 2011 actually hadn't uh, gone after American forces. So it's this is a really a new development. Um, and so with the, the immediate actions in, in Iraq that triggered this was, of course, uh, the killing of uh, an, a U.S. contractor uh, by one of the sort of Iranian-backed militias inside Iraq. Uh, and then, of course, we responded and hit uh, Iranian-backed militias with missiles. Um, and, of course, then that we are where we are. So um, the president, I think, you know, owes the American public a really good explanation of where we go from here. I think there's a lot of debate right now about whether or not, you know, killing Soleimani was a good idea or a bad idea. Um, I happen to think that in on balance, it was not necessarily the best idea, in mm-hmm. part because I think it's going to not necessarily make us any safer. So the president really needs to, I think, explain what the goal of his strategy is at this point. 
So I want to talk about this and, the, and, and this issue of consequences because there's been a remarkable switch in conventional wisdom over the last uh, 24 hours or so. We went from several days of dire warnings that this uh, assassination is going to lead to uh, direct military conflict, possibly war uh, with Iran, to after the Iranian strikes that had no casualties. Uh, you know, conventional wisdom now appears to be this is over. Uh, the, Iran's response was largely symbolic, um, destroying buildings, not any people, and that we're going to move on from this. But, but you know, you argue that that this is really a deep misunderstanding of where we are. Um, that that uh, what we're going to see is going to play out over months uh, and maybe years. What's your argument? Why is why is conventional wisdom wrong? The Iranians are very complicated. <laughs> um, you know, I don't think that killing Qasem Soleimani, they're not going to let that just go with some sort of uh, sort of minor response or if you want to judge launching ballistic missiles at U.S. forces, a minor response. Um, I think that the Iranians are probably right now taking a bit of a strategic pause just to see where uh, the president goes, of course, uh, the Trump administration, and to see what kind of advantage they can extract. Now, keep in mind, one of their main objectives is to get U.S. forces out of Iraq. Uh, that was one of Soleimani's uh, overwhelming objectives. So I think right now they're they're probably shifting towards a big you know, political push inside Iraq to achieve that objective. They're very strategic about how they act. Um, I also think that there will be revenge extracted over time. I think that they will return to a deniable uh, effort. Um, they tend to do things through proxies. Uh, they tend to not take credit for things. Uh, of course, you know, there was the attempted assassination on the Saudi ambassador in Washington many years ago. So I think that Soleimani's death is a pretty significant event that they're just I, I, I can't imagine this is the end of their response. So the administration has argued that, you know, this this killing was to establish or reestablish deterrence with with Iran. That an American contractor was killed. There's an attack on the uh, on the embassy and by killing the guy responsible for overseeing uh, all these proxy groups in the world, uh, we're sending a signal that there are red lines you can't cross, and if you do, uh, there will be dire consequences. It doesn't sound like you're convinced. Why, what, <laughs> what's your uh, sense for that argument? Yeah, I mean, I think, listen, co conventional deterrence against an asymmetric adversary rarely works. Um, you know, the fact that the administration had layered in over 14,000 additional troops since May into the region for precisely this purpose. Uh, the fact that they had to, after the killing, send in an additional, you know, 3,500 U.S. troops sort of betrays the fact that deterrence doesn't necessarily work. Um, so, you know, it'll be interesting to see at this point whether the president can find a way to pivot away from the maximum pressure strategy and essentially try to find some sort of diplomatic channel. The problem is, I think, frankly, at this point, the Iranians are going to wait out uh, the president. So what do you think then, you argue in this, in, in your foreign affairs piece, that the U.S. policy should be around de-escalating the 
conflict, this specific conflict, and more more broadly, uh, relationship and tensions with Iran. What would that look like? What are the steps that would be that would be taken to do that? And and why should we take this approach? Well, I think that the I mean, we, the U.S. and Iran have been uh, locking horns for for many decades now, and. I think the only way forward uh, to advance American interests at this point is to have some sort of diplomatic negotiation with the Iranians. Now, the problem is, I think this killing, I think, might make it impossible, at least in the near term, for the Iranians uh, to come to the table. I think, you know, the president's in- interesting comment yesterday about, you know, I'm willing to talk without preconditions is, is also a shift away from where his administration had been. Of course, Secretary Pompeo had a, an infamous list of 12 preconditions yeah. <laughs> for engagement. So, you know, I think he it's very clear he's trying to find the off ramp, which is a good thing. I, I think uh, that he has pivoted, is trying to pivot away from what I think, you know, my my read of Trump is that he, you know, found himself at the brink and didn't like it. Um, so I'm hopeful that the administration at this point uh, tries to figure out what its key objective is. Are we trying to get a better nuclear deal? Okay, if that's the case, then how are we going to get that? It's not going to happen through Iranian capitulation under a bunch of sanctions. It hasn't happened. That has not worked. <laughs> uh, in fact, it's made Iran more combative. Uh, that The attacks uh, over the summer around Saudi oil facilities and tankers, uh, it, it sort of is an indicator of that. So, you know, what is the goal? Is the goal to contain the Iranians? That's going to be very difficult to do. Is the goal to get a better deal? Is the goal to end their support for terrorism? All these things are going to be very difficult under the current circumstances. And where do you see the articulation or the formulation of a strategy like that coming from? I mean, the the, the general perception of President Trump is that um, is that this isn't his long suit. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, big strategic uh, goals, more tactical uh, things are. Uh, is this administration capable of of formulating a policy like that? You know, I don't have a lot of uh, optimism on this front. I think uh, the fact that the president is constantly uh, moving from, you know, wild swings of objectives and talking points and going on Twitter. And it's going to make it very hard for his national security team to, to formulate a coherent, thoughtful plan to take a look at all of the instruments of American power to achieve the objective of the president. Because I don't think the president really knows what he wants. I think at this point, he just wants uh, to look tougher than Obama. Um, that has been clearly one of his objectives, and this is, you know, his way of showing that. Um, but the real question is, is it actually getting us anywhere? And, you know, right now the Iranians are less constrained on their nuclear program than they were at the beginning of his administration. The Iranians are more destabilizing in the region than they were at the beginning of the Trump administration. So at this point, you know, the president's, you know, hanging his hat on dumping on President Obama, but he really hasn't shown where he's taking the nation. And I think it was pretty scary the last uh, several days to sort of see where we could, where this could end up. And I, I think... I think, unfortunately, that that's probably not going to change much under this under this team. So do you expect a continuation of, of the uh, maximum pressure campaign uh, alongside this new offer for negotiation? Yeah, I expect that. I think they're going to, uh, like, I take the president at his word. He said he was going to, you know, levy additional sanctions. Uh, I'm not really sure what those sanctions look like, given that we've <laughs> pretty aggressively sanctioned Iran to the point of uh, the abyss. But... Um, you know, I think maximum pressure isn't working, so I think he's got to have some sort of different play. Um, and I just think that the Iranians are going to maximize their position to, you know, expand their influence inside Iraq, 
to divide the international community. I think they're they're clearly uh, being perceived by many as the more reasonable uh, party, which is of course absurd. But you know they are very effective at dividing the United States from the international community right now because Trump is giving him all the openings. So what's that look like? What's what's the real concern there? Listen, if you if you want to have you know a tougher sanctions policy, you need your friends by you, <laughs> uh, and your friends want to have confidence that they know where you're headed on your strategy. So I think the events over the last several days um, don't give a lot of, you know, countries, especially the countries in Europe, which are really essential to maintaining pressure, financial pressure on Iran, a lot of confidence. Um, Now, of course, the Europeans are stuck because, of course, they want to have access to American markets and they, you know, of course, want to be as much on the same page as the United States as possible. But, you know, as you see, you know, from some of the comments in recent days, I mean, there's not a lot of confidence uh, that the United States is leading them down a good path. So is there so I guess what I'm trying to get at is, you know, what are the consequences of of that? The Europeans are in a in a hard place. Uh, Iranians are, you know, somewhat constrained by U.S. military capabilities against what they, you know, in terms of how they might respond this isn't a scenario of going toward resolution, but is there is there danger in here? What's the what's the biggest downside consequence of this? I think the biggest downside consequences right now, the Iranians are even closer to a nuclear breakout than they were uh, a few years ago. And there's no way to get out of that scenario um, under the current circumstances. And that's not good for American interests. Um, that's not good for regional or global interests. So I think, you know, in some ways we're stuck in second gear right now. Um, And in part, just because of all the decisions the president has made since day one, he hasn't given himself a lot of options. He's he's narrowed his options over time. So I think, you know, it's going to be a lot of rhetoric, a lot of bravado, uh, you know, more sanctions um, and but with no real ability to get us to a better place on the things that we care about. And if. Iran responds, as you suggested earlier in the conversation, potentially with actions by proxies and whatnot. What should the U.S. response be to those kinds of provocations? Yeah, this is going to be very hard. I mean, it would obviously depend on what what they did. Um, And I think that there is a real chance for miscalculation. I think both sides are feeling a little bit confident right now. Um, So, you know, when I'm looking at the situation, if the Iranians, say, for example, tried to undertake a cyber attack on you know, U.S. infrastructure or corporations. They have, a, they have a significant cyber capability to do not to do denial of service attacks, for example, um, or to take down U.S. government websites. I expect that the U.S. would respond in some sort of reciprocal manner. Um, if they do something as bold as try to, you know, kidnap an American military official or assassinate an American military official, well, then I think that that's going to put us into a cycle of, of escalation that will be very difficult to get out of. And what do you see the role of Congress in in this? Um, you know, we've there have been steps taken to introduce a war powers resolution of some kind or action of some kind in order to limit the president's ability to take unilateral action. What's your read on on that effort and what should Congress's role be on this? Well, I was actually uh, very happy to see uh, Speaker Pelosi introduce 
uh, a war powers resolution. It's been the first time we're going to have a war powers debate uh, on something as consequential as going to war with Iran uh, that we've, I mean, it's been years. I actually can't even remember the last time there was an actual war powers debate. So um, it's good that Article, you know, the Article 1 is asserting uh, Of the U.S. Constitution, right? Congress yes. has the authority <laughs> to declare war, yeah. Yeah, so, I, you know, as an American citizen who's watched an ever-expanding series of uh, conflicts without end and a former national security official who had to work on those conflicts, I'm actually happy to see the Congress engaging in this space and it's absolutely appropriate for them to do so and it's, you know, a long time overdue. So I think it's a good thing. Um, I will be interested to see in the coming days. Uh, you know, I think the House will vote on it today or tomorrow, and then it'll be up to the Senate to take action. I think it'll be really important for the Senate to do so. Um, but as you saw, you know, in just the last 24 hours, you know, you have the administration going up to, to Congress to brief on the situation. And a lot of, you know, senators, including Senator Lee right. uh, from Utah, yeah. expressing a lot of concern about what the the president's uh, strategy is at this point. And, you know, it sounds like the briefing was, was very thin <laughs> in terms of information. And, you know, Secretary Esper allegedly, you know, basically lectured senators and told them debating war powers was not a good idea. Um, I just think it's that's ridiculous. Uh, this is the U.S. Uh, Constitution we're talking about here. It's the role of Congress to do so. So I'm I'm very happy to see it happening and I, I'm excited to see uh, where this heads and I hope the Senate takes it up. And what do you so how how effective can Congress be? Uh, this has always been a challenge, you know, in these situations, particularly uh, when there are immediate actions and there is a, a, you know, a, an argument that there needs to be an immediate response. Uh, can Congress really provide a meaningful check on executive power in these situations? Well, I think we're about to find out. <laughs> um, I mean, it hasn't for quite some time. I think it's abdicated its responsibility and ability to do so. I mean, but of course, there's ways that the Congress can do that. They can do it through the power of the purse, uh, approval of funding or not approving funding for, you know, hostilities. Uh, I think that's, you know, something that Representative Rokana is very interested in, uh, in terms of getting uh, a bill through that says no, you know, funds will be authorized for war with Iran. So there are certainly ways for Congress to put teeth uh, into their oversight. But it's also as simple as just calling up the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State and having a public hearing and forcing them to come into the public and explain uh, the strategy and what their rationale is. That so far hasn't happened. Everything's been private so far. I think that's a mistake. Um, I think that the the chairman of uh, the House Armed Services and the House Foreign Affairs Committee need to, to push for public hearings. Uh, Senate side's a little harder because, of course, Senator Risch and others and Senator Inhofe don't exactly have an interest in doing that. But I think that certainly Congress can can be effective. They just have to they just have to take it up and, and lean in. And talk more about why that's important for the Congress to have the administration come up and articulate the case. Why why does it why does it matter? Well, I mean, the, the Congress is a representative of the people. And, you know, when we're dealing with something as consequential as potentially sliding into war, um, you know, I think the American public are owed answers to really tough questions. And, you know, it's not a political thing. It's really a a important uh, uh authority and role of the Congress. And, you know, frankly, the administration should want their buy-in. <laughs> uh, you you want to have broad buy-in, especially bipartisan buy-in when you're doing something um, so consequential. So uh, right now, of course, the Hill is very divided. Um, I think the partisanship is pretty extreme, but 
at the same time, you know, this is a moment where national security, you know, should come first. And I think the administration really needs to to get the Congress on board on both sides. So in this environment, and there will be a lot of rhetoric, there are likely to be additional actions um, that are that are taken. Uh, you've indicated some ways that uh, Iran could respond. Um uh, what should our listeners, kind of as we close here, what should our listeners be paying attention to? Where, where is the action? Where, what's going to tell us how this is unfolding uh, amidst all the noise that's likely to likely to occur? Yeah, I think the I think the American public should pay attention to the bigger picture, um, and it's hard to to factor that in because <laughs> we're all you know on the news talking about the tactical decisions. Um, but I think it's really important to figure out, you know, where do we want our relationship with Iran to be? Where do we want the Iranian nuclear program to be? And how are we getting there? And what tools do we have to get to a better place? Because right now we're not in a good place. Uh, we're in a worse place than we were a few years ago. And I think that's what the American people need to pay attention to. Um, I really worry about the nuclear issue uh, quite a bit. Um you know, I, I don't it's interesting that the Iranians haven't taken some more aggressive steps thus far on the nuclear program, including, you know, enriching at 20 percent or potentially doing another covert site. But there's certainly the possibility for that. And with diplomacy on ice right now and, you know, of course, the Iranians now back in the corner and the United States back in its corner, I don't see a lot of way forward um, and I, so I think for the American public, they have to say, OK, well, where has this gotten us? Well, very good. Uh, certainly a lot to pay attention to as, as we go forward. So Kelly Magsiman of the Center for American Progress and the former NSC director for Iran for Presidents Bush and Obama. I want to thank you so much for being on Deep Dish. You're very welcome. Thank you. And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show, do me a favor and tap the subscribe button in your podcast app so you can get each and every new episode as it's released. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would like today's episode, please tap the share button and send it to them as well. As a reminder, the opinions you heard belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Our audio engineer for this episode is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.